0: Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I am your host. And on today's episode, we are going to share with you an interview that Megan did with Dana Barrett. She's a Democratic candidate for Congress in Georgia's 11th congressional district. And Megan and Dana talked about Dana's views on some of the most pressing issues in Washington, including recent military action with Iran in the impeachment process. Dana also weighs in on some of the most pressing policy debates within the Democratic Party. And we get a little sense of what Dana was doing before she decided to run for Congress, which was doing a little bit like what we do, hosting a radio show. And she was one of the few moderates in talk radio. So she has an interesting experience there to share with you all. Just an editor's note that this podcast was recorded on January 15th. There are certainly updates on some of these pressing issues in Washington. But I still think Dana's answers are relevant here and can give you a sense of how she would approach the job if she was to become a member of Congress. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Megan and Dana Barrett.
1: Joining the podcast is Dana Barrett, a Democratic candidate for Georgia's 11th Congressional District. Welcome to the podcast, Dana. Thank you for having me. How does it feel to be on the other side of the interview after your career in radio? Uh,
2: it's weird to be the one answering the questions. I, uh, <laughs> I like I like being in control on the other side, but, you know, I'm learning. <laughs>
1: I'm sure. Well, we will try to make this as painless as possible, As possible, so let's go ahead and get started. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what motivates you to run for this seat in Congress?
2: Sure. I have a very sort of long and winding uh, background career-wise, so I'll try to give you uh, a little bit of my personal life and a little bit of my professional life without getting too in the weeds. The um, personal life side is that I grew up in Philadelphia Uh, I went to Cornell University, and I came here straight after college in the late 80s, and I kind of meant to stay here for two years. Atlanta was this, you know, growing city, just starting to sort of really become um, noteworthy on the world stage, and it seemed like a really cool place to go start my career, Uh, but then life happened, as it often does, and here I am, what is it, almost like 32 years later now. So in any case, I've lived here for now significantly more than half of my life and uh, raised my daughter here. And uh, and had my whole career here, and I uh, started my career in the technology sector, and that was a good bit of my career. Uh, I was on the customer side initially, then um, became a self-taught programmer, worked my way up the corporate uh, ladder, became a vice president, ultimately had my own small tech company, um, kind of got the entrepreneurial bug after that and did some other things in the world of entrepreneurial uh, life, but then um, I, I sort of always had this um, desire to make an impact, to do something in media, to have a bigger voice. And I wasn't really able to do that because I, when I was younger, because I got divorced when I was fairly young, and my daughter was little, and I needed to, you know, keep the the decent income from the corporate job rather than trying to go into media, which, as you guys know, is um, not the best paying field, especially when you're first getting in. So. <laughs> Uh, Ultimately, I did a lot of media uh, and entertainment-type stuff, sort of almost just trying it out as a side hustle for many, many years until my daughter left for college, which was 2010. So in 2010, I moved into media full-time, and then I was sort of able to work my way up and end up with a daily talk radio show. Uh, first on 1190 AM in Atlanta, and then uh, later I moved over to WGST, the iHeart Talk Station, and I also during that time did uh, the Atlanta Tech Edge TV show. So because of my technology background, I hosted that show on the 11 Alive Network here. So that was sort of that's sort of the the high level. The the down and dirty part of the career story is that when I was uh, doing the show on 1190, it was an all business and technology related talk show, and I purposely stayed away from politics because and frankly I had done that throughout my entire life I, I did not talk about my views um, being somebody who is more liberal and uh, pro-choice and all of those kinds of things I just didn't talk about it. I was in the South trying to get along uh, I you know to please customers and clients and I you know you never want to alienate anybody and what's that old adage like of the things you don't talk about in polite companies sex politics religion um, And so I didn't talk about it. And then when the 2016 election happened, I felt guilty that I had not spoken up more for what I believed in, not just because I had a a platform on the radio, but just as a human that I had not stood up for what I believed in more. So that day, literally the day after the election, uh, I made the decision to open my mouth and start speaking up. And so I did that on my radio show that day uh, and every day after that. Unfortunately, that was a station that was uh, owned by a very right-wing company, uh, and so they they were not happy with that. And ultimately, they found uh, a way to get rid of me, which I knew was going to happen, but it was a risk I decided was worth taking because it was important to stand up for what I believed in. Uh, luckily, as I mentioned when I was kind of giving you the overview, I had enough contact in radio at that point that I was able to move over to WGST uh, and do a political talk show two hours a day five days a week. uh, And that's what I was doing until I decided to run for office. And um, I know I'm making this story very long, but the reason I decided to run really was not only was I talking politics on the radio, which was great. And I was having an impact, I believe, although, you know, I was still certainly growing, but I was talking to the bubble where everybody agrees. So that, you know, how much, how much does that really do to move the needle? But then on top of all of that, I happened to move. I had been renting ever since my daughter left for college. I decided I wanted to buy something. And uh, I bought a condo, and it landed me in the 11th district. And when I looked up the representative there, Barry Loudermilk, I was um, not happy with what I saw. And when I looked up, uh, you know, who was running against him, I was concerned that nobody was really mounting a serious challenge and so I started putting dealers out and uh, asking some questions about whether or not this is something I could do. And ultimately, I decided to, uh, to go off the air and make a run for it.
1: Well, that sounds like an amazing journey. And it's important for Georgians to feel like Congress is taking up issues that will have a positive impact locally. What do you think are some of the most pressing issues here in the 11th District uh, that you would go to Congress to work on?
2: You know, I think there's... Um, you know, an interesting way of looking at that, because to some extent, almost everything that happens nationally, well, let me put it this way, almost everything that should be happening nationally from a legislative perspective should have a local impact. Part of the problem is we're not seeing a lot of that. Um, When I'm out on the campaign trail, uh, I often open my speeches with the question, what has, because, you know, I'm the interviewer, I like to ask questions. So, I often say, when is the last time you remember the federal government creating some legislation that impacted your daily life in a positive way? And people are stumped. And, you know, I talk about the fact that for me, that was the Affordable Care Act. And the reason that was so important for me is because I'm a breast cancer survivor and I've been self-employed for a long time. So having, uh, you know, to pay the high cost of health care is really personal for me. But the Affordable Care Act passed in 20, or I'm sorry, in 2009, over 10 years ago. That's crazy. So when you look at what's happening locally now, uh, certainly health care is a huge issue. And if we can get the government back on track and, and actually making some progress on health care, that is going to have an impact locally. If people are having to spend less out of their pockets day to day to pay for sickness or uh, you know a, a broken bone at a kid's soccer game or whatever else, they're going to have more money to spend on their daily lives, and that makes an impact, right? So in many ways, a lot of the big sort of ticket issues that we're talking about will have local impact. In addition to that, in particular in the 11th district, we are dealing with several different issues that have to do with uh, the environment. Uh, we've had the, the sterogenics fallout, um, no pun intended, uh, mm-hmm. and we've got coal ash issues. And so there's a lot of environmental issues in the district that. Uh, my opponent, Barry Loudermilk, has, has worked against. He has been um, working to dismantle the EPA, and his only explanation is, well, I don't like regulation. Well, some regulation is not only necessary, it's good. And in some cases, even the big companies want the regulation because it allows them to remain competitive. So working on putting the EPA back together and making sure that we're undoing all of this undoing will have a huge uh, local impact in District 11. So um, there are a lot of things like that, I think, where they seem like they're pie-in-the-sky issues. You know, when you're talking about the EPA, you don't really think about what's happening in the district, but I think issues like that really do uh, impact us locally.
1: I'm really glad you brought up healthcare, care, and uh, let's go back to that for a moment. What kind of progress would you like to see on healthcare care? Uh, specifically, Democrats are pretty divided on this issue over a single-payer Medicare-for-all care plan, um or reforms to the system we have now where do you stand on those healthcare reforms
2: you know i think it's a it's a complicated issue and i kind of hate that we want to boil everything down to bumper sticker level you know medicare for all fits on a bumper sticker fix aca fits on a bumper sticker and the answer is uh, i think way more complicated than that i think that we are struggling because all we're really talking about is moving around who is paying the price, not uh, actually, you know, writing the check essentially to cover the cost of healthcare. And that's, that's not the root problem. And so, and all the politicians are touching on this a little bit in the debates. Uh, Some of them did last night and they have in all of the debates, but ultimately if we're not going after the pharmaceutical industry and the uh, insurance industry and all of the middlemen and all of the corruption um, and lack of regulation in the medical industry, who pays for it at the end of the day, We're just moving around where the money comes from. So I'm not a fan of going to Medicare for all because I'm worried that it's a band-aid on a broken leg. Um, and that ultimately, when you look at what Medicare is doing now, for example, uh, Medicare will pay some exorbitant drug price. I have a, a, a my stepfather's on a on a drug that costs something like, Uh, almost $12,000 a month, 11,600, something like that. And Medicare pays $11,000 of that. and, And my stepfather pays 600. So he doesn't feel the pain of that price, but Medicare is paying it. So ultimately the pharmaceutical industry is still getting their money and the taxpayers, you know, he paid into Medicare, sure. But at the end of the day, that money's coming from the government. So that's not good enough. You know, so I I think we need to really start focusing on the bad guys in this system uh, and not how we're going to pay the bad guys, but how we're going to get rid of the bad guys.
1: Let's transition to some of the leading issues in Washington right now. Uh, President Trump recently ordered a drone strike that killed a top Iranian military commander, uh, which brought the U.S. and Iran to the brink of war. Tensions between the two nations have subsided, but there's still an effort in Congress to restrain future military actions in Iran. First, can you share your reactions to these recent developments?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not someone who jumps to an immediate like, that was wrong, that was right. I I am somebody who always wants to see the evidence. Um, I think, you know, all Americans agree that Soleimani was not a good guy. Uh, He was a bad actor on the world stage. He was responsible for a lot of deaths. And I think a lot of people um, are fine with him no longer being uh, on the face of uh, of the Earth. But at the same time, we cannot just go unprovoked um, and and take out a general um, in somebody's government. That's that's against you know international law. And the president has a um, long history, shall we say, of lying. And so I think it's was it Ronald Reagan who said trust but verify. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't even trust him, <laughs> but I certainly want to verify what you know, what these actions were based on. And we're getting all kinds of mixed um, signals about whether or not there was an imminent threat, what that was. Um, They're not showing us the evidence. And so I'm very skeptical that there was provocation for this. I really, um, you know, I hope it's not the case, but it feels to me like the president wanted to distract the country from impeachment and that he wanted to win on the foreign stage. He wanted to take out a bad guy like some of his predecessors had, <clears throat> Barack Obama. And, um, and that's what this was. And so while, again, Soleimani, not a good guy, okay that he's gone, this was not the way to do it. And I do think uh, the president has done, you know, in many cases throughout his uh, tenure so far, has done everything he can to go around Congress. And it is critical that Congress have oversight and that Congress authorize War acts. So, yeah, I think we need to uh, get hold of the reins here. And, you know, I think in, in previous presidencies, there was a, on top of the law, there was sort of a presidential flash. I don't I hate to use this word because it's so male, but gentleman's code and that people did the right thing, even if it wasn't codified in law, because they knew it was the right thing. And this president doesn't do that. So I think it's time that we write everything down now. Um, And we make sure that there are no loopholes where a president can go rogue and do whatever he or she wants.
1: Gotcha. Through the fall, Congress was consumed by an effort to impeach President Trump. Speaker Pelosi is set to deliver articles of impeachment to the Senate today. Um, As you have observed this impeachment, can you reflect on the importance of congressional oversight of the executive branch and what you made of President Trump's efforts to restrict witness testimony and document sharing?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is obviously we could any one of these questions you're asking me, we could do like an hour on each one. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm trying to give you like a high level view, and even now I feel like I'm going on too long. But at the end of the day, uh, it kind of goes back to what I was just saying. I think this president has um, played fast and loose with the law and has done kind of whatever he feels like doing as long as it benefits him at the end of the day. And and listen, I don't know why we expected anything different. That's the way this man has operated in his entire business life. He's done whatever he wants and personal life, by the way, he's done whatever he's wanted to do. And then he's just had the lawyers come in behind him and clean it up. Uh, Whether he was having to file for a bankruptcy or get a divorce or, um, or pay somebody off or whatever it was, this is how this guy operates and this is how he's operating as president. So I think it's more important than ever um, that we have oversight in, in Congress. We have three branches for a reason, and they're supposed to be um, a balance of these powers. And we're seeing, you know, this president in particular, and by the way, this is not, he's not the only one. You know, we've seen a lot of executive orders over time, presidents sort of taking some things on without congressional approval, but this is now sort of elevated to the nth degree with Trump. And I think it is because at least in the case of Obama's executive orders, for example, he was doing things uh, that were above board in, in the public eye and signing just an executive order to get something done. Trump's doing that and doing all this kind of backroom dealing, which is just not acceptable and, you know, not lawful. So in some cases. Uh, and so I do think it's critical that Congress have oversight. I do think that look, Nancy Pelosi did not want to go down the road of impeachment. She did so reluctantly because she was concerned about the political fallout, and so I think she did it reluctantly because it is the job of Congress to do that, and she felt like she had no other choice. There's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks – I don't know what what you thought of this – but about whether or not her move to hold uh, off on moving the uh, impeachment over to the Senate was artful or not. Um, and whether she got anything out of it or not, and I think at the end of the day she uh, should get a lot of credit. I think a lot of people are saying, "Oh, she failed. She held on to the impeachment articles, and that was a mistake." I don't think so. When they did the impeachment hearings, it was we were coming into the holidays. Who was going to pay attention to the news cycle? I think she held it long enough that everybody's focused on it again now. She gave some of the people um, on the Republican side who were in who are in difficult districts for their re-elections time to have to answer some questions, Um, more evidence to bubble up, and here we are. So we'll see what happens today. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be watching along with everybody else, but I do think the Democrats and the House in particular did what they had to do.
1: Would you have voted in favor of one or both impeachment articles approved by the House in December?
2: I would have, yeah.
1: On your website, you say, I don't accept that we are spending trillions of dollars for a gridlocked government. Can you please describe what you meant by this and what needs to change?
2: Sure. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about tax taxes in general, tax reform, tax credits, tax breaks. Um, I think, and by the way, also on the flip side, what we should be spending money on in a government. You know, uh, typically we end up in this sort of battle on the Republican side. They're saying, uh, you know, we're spending too much uh, you know we need to cut government programs. And on the democratic side, we're saying we're not taking care of people enough. We need to spend more money on government programs. My sense is we're paying a lot we're we're putting a lot of money in now. Um, and I think people would feel a lot better um, about that if they felt like there was something getting done. and And not that nothing gets done, but that kind of goes back to the question I was asking uh, about what the federal government is actually uh, achieving in terms of our daily lives. And I think people watch the news and they watch what's happening in Washington and they see all of these uh, politicians playing to reelection. And, and, you know, spending, you know, you watch those hearings and each one gets their five minutes and they essentially, um, they essentially just repeat what the other one said and showboat for the cameras, hoping that they'll get the news cycle, that they'll get the clip that is on the news and they'll get their moment in the sun. That's not, effective governing, that's showboating. And I think you can just take that one little example. And, and, you know, if you look at the broader picture, you see so much of that kind of nonsense happening, all of the hyper partisanship, um, we're not getting the work done. So we're spending all of this money. um, And then nothing's happening, laws are not getting passed. So that's what I think needs to change. And, you know, another, I think, really good example is every time, it's time to make a, a decision on the budget. It seems like lately we risk a government shutdown, and we have often now gone into government shutdowns for excessive numbers of days. who Who in their life, in any business, in any personal life, could operate that way? Where can you just imagine um, you know your uh, some local business saying, well, we couldn't decide on how we're going to spend money next year, so everybody go home. We're not going to, you don't have to work until we figure this out. Just go home. Oh, yeah, don't worry. We'll still pay you later, but we're going to pay you not to work. (laughs) It actually costs the government more money to shut Mm -hmm. down than to just stay open with the existing budget. And also, can you put it in a personal perspective? Can you imagine saying to your kids, hey, um, listen, mom and dad can't decide on um, dinner. Mommy wants Chinese food. Daddy wants uh, hamburgers. We can't decide. So dinner's canceled. No dinner. We're just not eating. For the foreseeable future. I mean, this is just not how things should operate. Uh, and I think, like I said, I think we would all feel far more comfortable paying into something, um, even if we're paying a little bit more than we want to, if we felt like we were getting something back, if we were driving uh, on roads that weren't falling apart, if our infrastructure wasn't crumbling, you know, if we were getting somewhere on healthcare, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Gotcha. Recent reports suggest that the U.S. and global community may have as little as 10 years to adopt solutions that would avoid the worst effects of climate change. The raging fires in Australia may be a stark warning of what's to come in some places. In your view, what should the federal government do about climate change?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, it's a huge issue and very complicated. Um, and, you know, what we were talking a little bit earlier about the um, EPA and the way that the current administration has been dismantling EPA. And I certainly think we need to get back to that. I think we need to be incentivizing um, things in, that are better for the environment, like, um, you know, clean energy, um, whether it's solar, um, wind. You know, we need to actually start making moves on doing some of these things instead of allowing ourselves to be controlled by. Um, these industries that are poisoning the atmosphere. And this has been a a discussion for many, many years. And it's crazy to me that this is something that is partisan because this is for all of us. I mean, there's no arguing the science here. And it's also appalling to me that we are um, actually trying to, you know, that the current administration is actually trying to come up with, Fake science, alternative facts. It's ridiculous. We know the science. Many, many scientists over and over again have said exactly what you just said. We've got this 10-year window. Um, So it is like almost day one mission critical um, for whomever gets into office and at the level of the presidency that we begin to put those regulations back in place um, for the EPA and we start putting uh, incentives in place for companies uh, and individuals to do the right thing. Uh, in terms of the environment, and by the way, we need to get back um, in league with our allies in the Paris Accords and all of those things, and and work with the globe uh, on on trying to do what we can to um, turn the clock back a little bit.
1: So to switch to something near and dear to my heart, um, the landmark Supreme Court ruling in favor of marriage equality was not the end of the fight for LGBTQ rights in the U.S. In your view. What other, what other policies should Congress consider when it comes to protecting LGBTQ people?
2: Well, I mean, it's like anything else. I think we, we, it, there's just no reason to treat any, any group in this country like they are less than any other group. And, you know, it's frustrating to me on all fronts that we are still talking about these kinds of things in 2020. You know one of the things I said you were reading a piece of my website back to me a minute ago. and I think one of the things I say on my website is the government needs to be out of our bodies and out of our bedrooms. Um, and they also need to be out of our decision on who we marry. It's none of their business. It has nothing to do with the the you know ruling of the land. What difference does it make to anybody else, what I'm doing and who I'm married to or not married to? So, you know, one of the problems I think legislatively right now is we're not passing laws. We're sort of letting the courts and the court rulings, and you even just referred to a court ruling as it relates to this, be the law of the land. I think it's time to stop that. We, the legislative branch need, excuse me the legislative branch needs to act um, and pass laws that um, give marriage equality once and for all. And frankly, if there needs to be a constitutional amendment um, that makes, the LGBTQ community equal to everybody else, then let's do that. I say that almost like with, like it's an impossibility. It's ridiculous that it is, but when you, uh, and I don't mean to shift gears because I think the LGBTQ conversation is hugely important, but we have never even passed the ERA women are not even equal in this country. And that's been how many years since that, since that battle began because the States refused to ratify it. It's absurd um that that's happening so given the pushback in georgia in particular against the lgbtq community i uh find it hard to believe that we would be able to get a constitutional amendment passed however i do think we can write legislation and that needs to happen
1: gotcha so yeah speaking of non-passage as a follow-up um what are your thoughts on the equality act having passed the house but then stalled out in the senate
2: well, I mean, isn't that the story of the last however many years? I mean, pretty much everything has passed the House and stalled out in the Senate. Um, this is what I mean when I say the government's not working. There should be there should be new rules that uh, that don't allow partisanship to stop legislation from going to the floor of either house, or you know, of either side. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's. It's critical. This is where our sort of grassroots efforts come in that I think people need to be calling their senators and calling their Congress people um, and, and insisting that these issues go to the floor for votes.
1: So, for our final topic, let's talk a little bit about gun regulations. Democrats have been working to get a slate of gun reforms through Congress for years and succeeded in passing legislation in the House to expand background checks last year. Are there additional reforms you'd like to see passed in Congress?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would say that I'm essentially in favor of all of the common sense gun regulation. I mean, I'm, I'm we're living in Georgia. This is a state that loves its guns, and I, um, you know, in my own personal world, I don't own a gun. I don't feel like I will ever need to or want to own a gun. Um, and if I could, you know, um, wave my magic wand and the world wouldn't have guns, I don't think we need them. But I also understand that that's not the world we live in. That's not reality, and I'm okay with responsible gun ownership. So um, we need to have whatever rules in place um, that we can to make sure that what is happening is responsible. So, yes, I believe in universal background checks. Yes, I believe we need to close all the loopholes for gun shows and all of that. I think there should be licensing for gun owners. That includes – Renewing that license, um, when you get your car, uh, your license to drive a car, you take a driver's test. I think you should have to be trained to use a firearm. It shouldn't just be about who you are in terms of not having a criminal background, but that you have an ability to use the weapon, that you know how to store the weapon properly, uh, and, and all of those things. And that should have to be renewed every so often. And I think we should have um, better technology across the states. Uh, uh, we need a, a federal database so that if someone is you know, not allowed to have a gun because of a criminal background, because of domestic violence, whatever the case may be, that that information is readily available in any state that they go to. So we don't want somebody to to have that in their background in Georgia, and then they go to California and they can get a gun, no problem. That's not okay. So I think some of those things need to be uh, also codified and um, need to have some federal oversight.
1: Is there anything we missed that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: I mean, what I think is really interesting is, and thank you for asking that. I, you know, we want sometimes to dig into all of the issues with people, and I think it's important to know how our current legislators and future legislators think about these topics. But I also think there's a, an ethical piece and um, an intellect piece and a, a personality piece, and all of that that needs to maybe almost take more. You know, we look at. I think we tend to look at charisma and um, credentials. When you look at the debate stage last night, for example, with the presidential, right, we look at like who came across the best and we look at you know what they say they've done and what they have done and all of those things. But I also think there's just at the end of the day an ability uh, and a, um, a competence piece and like I said, an ethical piece that needs to be taken into consideration. You know, I think it was uh, Amy Klobuchar that was talking last night uh, about that, about the ability to do the job And the reason I'm saying that is because, you know, last week, if you had interviewed me or two weeks ago, let's say if you had interviewed me, you wouldn't have been asking me about Iran because it wasn't the hot topic of the day. So whoever we elect in all of these roles, uh, whether it's the presidential or a a congressperson, they need to have the ability to adapt to whatever the new issue is, to learn uh, as much as they can about, again, whatever that issue is, whether it's a foreign policy issue or a domestic issue, and to apply their knowledge and their ethics and their values um, to that issue. And so, you know, I think that's where we we tend to forget things. And I think Bowdermilk, who I'm running against, has sort of proven that he um, is a one-note guy. He's playing the party game. He's not going into his district and listening to the people. He doesn't hold town halls. Uh, he doesn't gather that information. Um, and he's just doing what the party tells him. And I think we also need, you know, look, the job I'm running for is representative. So that means going into the district uh, on a regular basis once you're in office and before, of course, and listening to what the people want. Uh, that's the job I intend to do, and that's what we should be demanding of anybody who is, uh, is taking one of these jobs for us.
1: If our listeners want more information or want to help out your campaign, where can they find you?
2: Well, that is the most important question of the day for me. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the website is electdanabarrett.com. Um, You can find me on uh, all the socials also at, I believe it's just barrett.
1: Great. Well, Dana, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, We look forward to seeing how this um, election cycle unfolds, and we really appreciate you taking the time.
2: I appreciate you guys taking the time and uh, interviewing all the candidates. Great work. Thank you so much.
0: That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.